Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to the fee-for-service dentist podcast. Today we have a special guest. His name is Frank King. Frank is an expert in suicide prevention and depression. We're going to talk a little bit about signs to look for, what to do, questions to ask, and possibly how do you prevent this seemingly epidemic that's growing and growing, especially in our teenage communities. Today's podcast is sponsored by Kettenbach Dental. Kettenbach, new product, Semcor. It's a hydrophobic core buildup material with a hydrophilic adhesive cement. So it satisfies both product needs as a core buildup and also as a cement. And it works with all adhesive systems. Kettenbach Dental going up on their 80th anniversary soon. You can find them online at kettenbach.dent.us or you can call 877-532-2123 and enjoy today's podcast, please. My name is Drew Burns and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe that the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe that the best way no, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart, that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet, our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast and these are our stories. Okay, welcome everybody. Today we have a special guest and I think it's never more appropriate than to talk to Mr. Frank King. He is a stand-up comedian who has a special interest and a special um, knowledge of the mental health associated with suicides. And it's happening at an alarming rate, especially in the area that we all come from around here in the 607 upstate New York area. So I'm going to welcome Frank right away and I'll let him give you a little bit of his background and we'll get into a little bit, see if we can come up with some some uh, understanding or explanation and hopefully talk a little bit about how people can try to prevent this from happening. I think that's so important. So Frank, how you doing today? I am exhausted, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> I was in, I was in, uh, I'm home. I'm home in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, last night I was in Provo, Utah. I recorded my episode of what's called dry bar comedy. It's a clean comedy show on YouTube. I think this is the 10th season. It's a big deal. Yeah. And we had a seven o'clock show and a nine thirty show. We didn't get done till eleven thirty. I had to drive about an hour back to the hotel at the airport. I think I got an hour and forty five minutes sleep. So, so I'm pretty much running on empty, running on. There we go. Um, but 
had a little modafinil, uh, provigil, and so <laughs> otherwise I'd be faced down in a pool of my own saliva. And uh, yeah, comedy was my first love. I people often ask me, or I I I tell them when I do a keynote because it's the elephant in the room. Wait a minute, a comedian talking about depression and suicide? How does that work? Well, I think a comedian's a good choice. A couple of reasons. One, think about the original comedian was a court jester, and the court jester's job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. I believe where there's humor, there's hope, where there's laughter, there's life that nobody dies laughing. And depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And I came close enough to dying by suicide in 2010 after filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy and losing everything that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like, literally. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. I tell that story every time I speak, and a friend of mine came up to me afterwards. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> so that's where the humor comes in. You know, it's not jokes, Sonny. It's just funny personal stories, things people say and do. You know, they don't realize it. You know, they, they mean well, but they don't think before they speak. So, and uh, comedy, my first love, I told my first joke in fourth grade. The kids laughed. The teacher was hysterical. And I thought, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. 12th grade, I did the talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up. And I won. I told my mother I was going to be a comedian. And she said, well, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care. But you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to Carolina, got a couple of degrees. And then my high school and college sweetheart and I moved to San Diego. And San Diego, California, just by coincidence, honey, has a um, comedy store, which is is still there on Earl Street, where it was when I started to this wow. day. And I remember being on stage with my first open mic night, April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1984. Halfway through my set, I heard a voice in my head say, you're home. So at that point, I decided, yes, I was going to do it for a living. And that was 84, April, 85, December. I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 35 years, I'm going on a road to do stand-up. You want to come along for the ride? Figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we gave up our apartment and our jobs and put a lot of stuff in storage that I couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. And we hit the road, and she and I hold the record, I think, for the longest nonstop comedy club road trip, 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. The future of fee-for-service dentistry is based in membership patients. If you need help starting your membership plan, or if your plan is too big for your team to manage, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com to set up your free membership growth solution demo with our team. Beer bars, pool halls, honky-tonks, drunk idiots screaming, tell us some jokes we can dance to. <laughs> okay, here comes a slow one. You can slow dance. <laughs> and then after that ended, or as that ended, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina originally, and a radio station in Raleigh that had the number one morning show, Rock Station, 
called and said, would you consider being a co-host on a radio show? Back in the mid-90s, they were hiring comics to be sidekicks. I said, sure. So that, that allowed me to come off the road. And I took a number one morning show in 18 months. I drove it to number six. A friend of mine said, you didn't just drive it in the ground, man. You drove that thing in the middle earth. I did. There's two kinds of people in radio, Sonny. People who have been fired, people are going to be fired. So it was not unusual. And by the time I got done with radio, the comedy club boom had busted. And right. so, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, clubs were closing faster than an opening. And so I'd always been a very clean comic, and I jumped to the corporate comedy circuit, the rubber chicken circuit, doing jokes after dinner, after lunch at conventions. And I rode that horse, made good money, until the last recession, 2007, 8, 9. And the speaking business dropped off 80% overnight. That's when we lost everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And when speaking came back, the meeting planners would say to me, Frank, we love you. We just can't pay you that kind of money anymore because I was making five grand for 45 minutes of good, clean comedy. Um, because HR is terrified of comedians. You, you put a microphone in somebody's hand, they can do a lot of damage in a very short period of time. Every now and then, one of them would say to me, we we're paying you $5,000 for 45 minutes of just jokes? And I'd say, no, you're not paying me for the jokes I tell. You're paying me for the jokes I don't tell. Yeah, the ones that when guys. I get done with my job. Yeah, when you when I get done with my job, you still have a job, which resonates with them. But they said, you know, we can't pay that kind of money just to be funny. You need to teach our audience something. And I'm like, oh, what am I? I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to make a living and a difference, but could never figure out what I had to teach anybody. And I didn't want to be a run of the mill, you know, motivational rah rah speaker or whatever. So. I read a book by Judy Carter called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And went into the book thinking I got nothing, but halfway through, I thought, oh, man, given my mental health history, my family, there's more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And if I took some suicide prevention training, got certified, I could keynote on suicide prevention. So I did take training. I've taken several trainings. And then I thought to myself, well, man, I got to rebrand because everybody thinks I'm funny. They don't think I can do anything serious. So my wife said, do a TEDx. And I famously said, what's a TEDx? And just by chance, I got an application, an email that week from one in Vancouver said, would you like to apply? So I applied and I got it my first time. And I decided it was going to be a suicide prevention TEDx. Called the conversation. And nobody sunny knew that I was depressed, clinically depressed and suicidal. It's called major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. So I came out on stage, came out of the mental health closet on stage at that TEDx. And when my wife got ready to play the TEDx, you know, it posted on YouTube. I said, look, stop, don't hit play yet. I need to tell you about a half dozen things you don't know anything about, about me. She didn't know. My family didn't know. My friends had no idea. And I've done five more TEDx's since then, all on mental health. And I've got a seventh one coming up May 15th in Plano, Texas. So each one is on mental health, one aspect or another. Help me build the brand. I'm the mental health comedian. By the way, if your listeners go to the mental health comedian, or as we say down south, the mental health comedian, Put an email address in. They can download the audio book of the first book and unnarrated and unabridged. I'm the narrator. It's about four hours and change. It's on men's mental health. And our fourth book in that series just 
just launched on April 20th. So that it's a four book series. And we were, that was, we, we figured we might get 12 guys to talk about their mental health problems. We ended up with 70. So what, what was going to be one book became a of a thousand pages. We turned into four books, which are much more manageable. So, um, that also helped build my brand. And in 2018, January 1st, I decided I would pick a lane, as they say in the speaking business. I have a motivational speech and networking speech. I do stand-up comedy, but I decided the only thing I was going to market was suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's all I market is. I mean, somebody calls and wants to, you know, stand up, 45 minutes stand up. I'll do it happily if they're paid, but I don't market it. All I market is my suicide. I believe that, that in the speaking business, you have to pick a lane, have to be the thought leader, the expert, you know, the, you know, the guy, right? not a generalist anymore. Back when I started to speak, you know, you could be a generalist. You could talk about a lot of things. Nowadays they want, you know, that person. So I'm becoming that guy. That's so, why we got you. That's why you're on here, Frank. Yes. And I decided I chose I tell my clients, my coaching clients, you need to figure out who your ideal clients are. And an ideal client in my mind is somebody who has an annual meeting. They, they use outside speakers because they have an annual meeting. People pay to come there. So they have a budget for speakers. And most importantly, they have a problem you can solve. They have a pain point you're addressing. I said, I don't care how good your keynote is. If they don't have a pain point or a problem you're solving, they're not going to book. So I chose six of the top 10 at-risk occupations for suicide, which is construction, fishing, farming, forestry, excavation, mining, and then the white collar, dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, and agriculture. And I picked six of those. And just that's all I market to is those folks. And because they have a really high rate of suicide, they have meetings, they got money, they use outside speakers, and they have a real need. Here's a, here's a staggering statistic for you, Sonny. I, didn't really, I knew construction was number one at-risk occupation. I didn't know how far ahead of everybody else they were. In 2018, last time the CDC had any numbers, 1,000 people died by accident in construction. 1,000 in the U.S. 5,000 died by suicide in construction in the U.S., which means... You're five times more likely to jump off that building than you are to fall off of it. That's how far ahead of everybody else they are. So I spoke, I'll be speaking next week at, uh, in Cincinnati. I think I'm doing four keynotes for uh, one's at a construction company, corporate office. The other three are on site for the workers. So, cause they have, cause they have such a high rate of suicide. So that, that's my story. That's what I'm doing these days. I'm getting ready, to, getting ready to do my seventh TED talk down in Plano, Texas. Well, let me, I got to ask you a few things, right? So as being a dentist, right, we're in a pretty high occupation perennially uh, in the suicide range. Uh, any, any points you want to talk about with dentists? I mean, what are some of the things that people should be on the lookout for in our profession? Yes. Uh, I When I talked to a dental group, because I have a three-hour dental CE. I can do one, two, or three hours of dental CE, suicide prevention. I say, look here, the good news is you're not number one. People think you're number one in that risk occupation for suicide. The bad news is you're solidly in the top 10. 
Right. And here's the signs of depression. This is not an exhaustive list. This is my top three. One is um, have trouble getting up in the morning, maybe late for work, but rally in the, af- rally in the afternoon, almost a different person. The eat too much or can't eat, sleep too much or just can't sleep. And here's one you can observe very easily. Let the personal hygiene go. So their hair's a little dirtier than usual. Clothes aren't quite so clean, probably because they can't, they have trouble dragging themselves out of bed in the morning to take a shower, run a little wash. Also, in the dental business, if you have a patient plop down the chair, and they've been really rigorous about their dental hygiene. They've been really good about it as long as they've been coming to see you. And they open your mouth and you look in and go, dear God, they're letting this slide. That may be a good indication they're living with depression. And so those are three of the top signs. People say, what do you say to somebody like that? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? <laughs> the, I know. I can't tell you how many times. Um, or choose joy. I mean, look, if you're, if you're not talking about dishwashing liquid, I'm out a lot. So, because it's in my DNA. There's no cure for it. It's just the way I'm wired. The, the thing you do say is, if you believe they're depressed, or they tell you they're depressed, you say, look, I'm here for you, and I mean it. I know you're not lazy or crazy or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. Now, here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time to help you get the treatment. And then you have to ask them, this is the hard part, are you having thoughts of suicide just like that? And if you can't ask that question just like that, do you find somebody who can? And if you can't, then you're welcome to post my phone number, Sonny, in in the show notes. Call me and I'll ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? But let's say they're not forthcoming. You suspect your gut tells you they're circling the drain. How would you know? Well, there are some pretty solid signs. You, you know, they talk about death and dying quite a bit. Or you catch them Googling death and dying. How do I kill myself? Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork or their music or their writing. They're gathering the means to die by suicide. Whether it's stockpiling medication or purchasing firearms. They are getting their affairs in order. That's a big one. And it's really dangerous if they're giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure the possessions go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. There's a counterintuitive one, and I encounter this quite a bit, that they've been depressed for a long time, Sonny, but now they're happy for no apparent reason. And you're happy because, well, finally they're happy. The problem is they may be happy because they've, They've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is coming to an end. That's what suicide is most often about. It's not about wanting to kill yourself. I didn't want to kill myself. I just simply wanted to end the pain. And so if you've chosen time, place, and method, you can, you know, it's lifted off of you. You can relax, enjoy life briefly, say goodbye to everybody. And then so that's a very dangerous one. So, but what if they tell you they are suicidal? Having thoughts of suicide. What do you do? Well. Again, simple, not easy. You say, do you have a plan? And if they say yes, you say, what is the plan? And if they have a plan that's detailed, time, place, and method, the best thing to do is ask them to allow you to help them go to a mental health facility and check in and get evaluated. Short of that, 
get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline. Or if they're younger, they've created a text line for millennials and Gen Z because they're more forthcoming in text. You type the word help to 741-741, and it'll be somebody roughly your age on the other end of the text line. Now, if they're a danger to themselves, an immediate danger to themselves or other people, got to dial 911. Now, that'll buy them probably a three-day involuntary hold. The police come and they believe they're suicidal, they take them in front of a judge. The judge decides three-day lockdown or not. And if they're actively suicidal, chances are and they're going to be mad at you, but they're probably going to unfriend you on Facebook, but at least they'll be alive. Now, let's say they are having thoughts of suicide, but they don't have a really detailed plan. What would you do? And by the way, this is not in any book or any course that I ever took. I came up with this on my own. I would say to them, okay, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they said no, I say, okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here. Something is keeping them here. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And I have a variety of reasons why I don't kill myself. One is I have chronic suicidal ideation. And every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience who has that. And let me describe it for you. It means that for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. When I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts, unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. So I tell that story. Young woman comes up after the show. She goes, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but I tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, you know your story about the car? Get it fixed, buy a new one, kill yourself? I go, yeah. She says, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I just thought I was kind of freaking completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone, and I wept. That's the power of starting the conversation. At the event last night where I was doing comedy, a speaker trainer friend of mine just happened to be in Provo, his, his wife. We had dinner two nights ago, and they came to the comedy show, and they brought her brother, who's a therapist, 20 years a therapist. And after the show, he goes, Frank, I watched your TEDx talk. And he said, I got to tell you, I have never heard of chronic suicidal ideation. He goes, I'm almost certain I've got patients who have it, but I've never even heard of it. And a lot of clinicians haven't. So that's, that's the beauty of, that's one of the reasons I'll kill myself because if I did, then there are people like that young woman that came up afterwards who might die by suicide because I simply wasn't there to tell her it has a name. It's a thing. And a lot of people live with it. Can I ask you a question now? Cause you said ending their pain. Can you, do you if, do you, if you don't mind, I mean, because you've been there. Can you describe what your pain was like? Well, we lost everything. And I was in charge of the money. We were just overextended. We had some rental property with negative cash flow. And as long as I was making good money, that wasn't a problem. But when I couldn't make any money, 
And we had a sizable house payment. I bought a big farm, put 50% down. I thought I was bulletproof. And so what was really hurting me, Sonny, people with depression, mental illness, oftentimes feel others' pain more intensely. And it was really hurting my wife. So, A, I was in charge of the money. I mean, I know Goldman Sachs and some others helped crash the world economy, the big short. But in our personal situation, I was in charge of the money. And she was in a great deal of pain. And I was feeling her pain. I think if I'd been single, Sonny, I would just tell the bank to shove the farm up their wazoo and walked away from it. But because of her pain, and there's something in this in suicidality called burdensomeness. Most often people who are suicidal feel like the world would be better off without them. Right. You hear I've people heard say, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, didn't it? Didn't they think about the people they're going to leave behind? As a matter of fact, they did. That's all they were thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I had a, had a million dollar life insurance policy. So I'm thinking to myself, I can fix this. She's going to be broken hearted, but she's never going to be broke again. So I was going to kill myself for the money. I had to call my insurance agent because I sold insurance right out of college. And I knew I had a two-year suicide clause. So if I had done it before two years had elapsed, they just returned the premium. After two years, she gets a million bucks. And turned out, I'd only had the policy 22 months. So I had to wait 61 days to kill myself. That's why I'm still here. Otherwise, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be here because it was it would have been, you know, paid up in force and I would have done it. And, and people say, you know, it's a selfish act. Well, from the outside looking in, yeah, it's a selfish act. But from the inside looking out, I really was thinking about her. It really was a selfless act. It was irrational, but it was selfless in that I would restore her financially. Mm -hmm. So you that's, were that's solve, the pain. You were solving her problems by that yeah. solution. Yeah. So that's selfless. And she'd be better off without me. I, I was literally worth more dead than alive, Sonny. Yeah. And that's uh, now every, everybody's pain is different. Right. You know, whether it's divorce or bankruptcy. Um, my depression in fact, is generally not a situation like I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. It's like a wheel with a flat spot, major depressive disorder. It just comes around every so often. And my cycle lasts 72 hours. I've been through it so many times, Sonny. I know when I begin to cycle down, 72 hours later, I'll be fine. The danger is, especially for young people, if you haven't been through that cycle that as many times as I have and know that, it, look, it's just a cycle. I don't fight it. I just, I ride, I ride with it. You know, I ride it out. But if you're young and you haven't been through the cycle and people who are depressed often think only in the immediate, look, if life is never going to be any better than this, why bother going on? I'm just going to end the pain right now. Not thinking that somewhere between three days and three weeks, you know, the fog will lift and you'll be a friend of mine says she did a TEDx on depression is a visitor. Depending who you are, it stays longer or shorter period of time. Mine happens to be three days. I, I go down the first day, I flatten out the second, I come back up the third. So, but is, that's why it's dangerous uh, for young people because they haven't been to 
Is is your wife or any other loved ones on that clock with you? Like they have an idea that hey, this is a cue, and they are they able to step in or provide some help? Yes, and just her knowing that I live with this, and I I did it in part for her because I'll tell her that I'm cycling down because I don't want her to see a scowl on my face and think she's done something wrong. If she knows I'm cycling down, she knows that's what's going on. It's not her fault. And she has a wicked sense of humor, which helps. I told her, look, one of my triggers, because oftentimes, most often, you have a trigger for depression. Something happens. A friend, I thought I was just a victim of my wiring and chemistry. A friend of mine go, who's been living with bipolar disorder for decades, said, no, Frank, you think back 24 hours next time you start to spiral down and see if there isn't a common element from the last time, the time before that. And sure enough, if I get too far behind on my paperwork, my taxes, my accounting, I begin to slide. And if I disappoint my wife, I begin to slide. And so she, she makes a joke of it. I'll do something stupid, Sonny, and say, are you mad? She'd go, no, honey, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. <laughs> so we can laugh about it. My my gym partner, my workout partner, knows what I live with. I believe you should you should have people. Anybody you know, love and trust should know what you're going through, know what it looks like, and know what kind of help you need when this happens. It's kind of like a pit crew. You know, if you're if you're racing NASCAR, you're not going to wait to hire a pit crew when you roll in the pit. You're going to have everybody standing by and ready to go, put, the, you know, take the tires off, put the tires on, fix the brakes and go. So in the books we wrote, we, we did those four books. They all look like an automobile owner's manual. They have a lot of automobile, automobile metaphors. Like you have to have a pit crew, you know, and, and prevention, you know, when you buy a car, you get AAA because you know, at some point somewhere, like he's in the car, flat tire breakdown. And then that's, thinking ahead and then maintenance you've got to do if if men took care of their cars the way they take care of their brain they better buy a bus pass because you've got to do routine maintenance on your mental health i call it a self-care i don't call it it's called a self-care plan i believe everybody should have a self-care plan whether you're neurotypical or you are living with mental illness something you do day in and day. you know it's the old cliche put your own oxygen mask on first Mine's very simple, diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, medication. Day in, day out. Uh, I'm on the keto diet and intermittent fast. I um, exercise five days a week minimum. I meditate. I try to get a good night's sleep. I know exactly what my sleep cycle is like and when I need to go to bed. Go to bed really early, like 7, 7.30, get up at 2, 2.30. That's just my cycle. And that, and I only need six and a half hours. That's my number. The problem is, Sonny, with sleep and burnout, it's become a badge of honor to, to as a, one of my TEDx coaching clients says, to run on empty, to depend on resilience. She says resilience is going to kill you. You need to take care of yourself, sleep, diet, exercise, right. meditation. Yep. And so, yeah, I think everybody should have a self-care plan. All right. Now I got to ask you a little bit because what's going on here locally with um, how about how about the teenagers, right? How about uh, do they present some different challenges in 
signals or recognition? What, 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 because what we're seeing, uh, and we talked a little bit off air, but we've had four or five now, just had another uh, young man just kill himself. We've had five young athletic or students in the area, college, high school, junior high, high school, you know, just all taking their lives. And it almost seems like it's spreading like a wildfire, like it's like an epidemic. What are, what are some things you can tell people, hey, these are the things to look for. Like you talked a little bit about the dentist. I, I really appreciate that for that part. But what about like a parent whose who's kids are, or, you know, a neighbor or a kid I'm coaching or something like that? Well, as I said, they're, they may be Googling death and dying, Googling how to kill yourself, Googling how to acquire the means. I would keep track of their, you know, their Google history. If they're, if they're Googling things like, how do you kill yourself? How do you kill yourself with a gun? How do you get hold of medication? You know, what's the best way to kill yourself? Just, you know, I, I suppose it's an invasion of privacy, but hey, I would much rather do that than have them gone and I'm not aware of it. Right. The well, and part of the problem, Sonny, is nobody wants to think that their kids are less than perfect. You know, yeah. there's something wrong with their children. So oftentimes ignore the symptoms. And there's a very famous case, Jamie Raskin, a congressman, lost his son about the time of January 6th when the Capitol was, you know, under siege. And Jamie knew that his son was struggling, knew that he had depression and thoughts of suicide, knew at that point in time he was struggling. But he thought what a lot of people think is that I want to bring it up, suicide, and give him the idea. That's a myth. Yeah, you people, some people believe you should never mention the S word in somebody in front of somebody who's depressed because I love the reasoning. It might give him the idea. Oh, yeah, suicide. What a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Trust me, the odds are better that they will survive if you bring it up. If your gut tells you that you think they are depressed and having thought suicide, they have a better shot at living if you bring it up. So well, don't, let's, you, let's, let's, let's talk about the gut feeling, right? What about, okay, I coach a, a bunch of, you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old young boys, right? What yep. are some th- What are some things that, or I'm a teacher, I'm an eighth grade teacher. What are some things that I should be kind of trying to feel the vibe or trying to, what are some things that I should be looking for? Well, let's say you, um, they turn in a paper and the theme is death or, death and dying in some form or fashion. Okay. So I'd be looking very carefully at writing. Um, or again, if you catch them Googling death and dying. Uh, or as I said, theme of their artwork, their music, or their writing. Um, are they constantly late to class, like early morning class, have trouble in the but rally in the afternoon? Afternoon's like a different kid. Are they losing weight? Are they gaining weight? Are they not getting enough sleep? Are they sleeping too much? The there's a there was a fear that during the pandemic the suicide rate would skyrocket. And in fact, the overall suicide rate dropped about 1.5% except in one demographic that's youth and college students it actually went up i'm sure in part because of the isolation the you know the distance learning on zoom 
they you know didn't know athletics because for a lot of kids extracurricular that's what high school junior high school is all about are they those wonderful extracurricular right helps them with connections right like just to feel part of yeah a team even if you're a scrub you know which i was constantly i rode the pine but you're part of a group and so yeah so that's also i think go with your gut if you're if you're dealing with a kid and all of a sudden there's a change mood the and it's again it's easy to say and hard to do to flat out ask them hey man are you depressed are you having thoughts of suicide i mean if they're not then no harm done no no blood no foul but if they are and i think what i believe that i do that's powerful is I get up on stage and I talk about, you know, my family more nuts than a squirrel turd and that I live with two mental illnesses. And men don't normally come out and talk about those things. No, no, it's not it's not a male macho uh, thing. Nope, nope, not acceptable. No, as a matter of fact, that's why I'm, more men die by suicide. Like eight out of 10 suicides in the US now are men. That's why construction has such a high rate because it's mainly men. So by me coming out and being vulnerable and, you know, coming out, all the warts exposed it gives other people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences without recrimination oftentimes when i speak well not oftentimes every time i speak i allow an extra half an hour when i'm done because i say to the group look we're going to do some general q a and then if you have an individual question you don't want to ask in front of everybody like hey i'm crazy can you help me then i'll spend another half an hour or whatever and answer each individual question individually and sometimes there's two people waiting and sometimes there's 10 because and and here's how most conversations start sonny you know frank i've never told anybody this <laughs> well i get that a lot uh yeah. because they know that i know it's not theoretical i'm not a They're clinician easy. this is yeah this is not some they know i hear the same music that they do not explain anything i'm not going to judge they just want to share a story and oftentimes when I come in and speak, after I'm gone, the meeting panel will tell me later, you know, Frank, three or four people came up. We had no idea they were struggling with this. But thanks to your talk, they felt like they could come forward and seek help. Most companies have an uh, employee assistance program, EAP, and most have a mental health benefit. So, but again, with men, you practically have to drive them into a corner to get them to get them into therapy. You know, it's got to be the, the spouse saying, look, we love you. I love you, but I'm not putting the kids through this. So either you get therapy or we're gone. Or the boss going, look, Bob, <laughs> you need to talk to HR and find out about the benefits, get into therapy, or you're done, man. Don't even bother coming in on Monday. That's we, how we, men are. But once they hear the good news, son, is, the good news is once they buy in, they're in all. They're all in. Yeah. Well, we have a little thing in dentistry that, you have patients, right? And you have patients that are fearful where, and, and, the, and the, the little thing is, listen, women will hyperventilate, men will pass out because the man can't accept the fact that they're nervous. So they can't say it because they can't, it's against their, their genes, you know? And a woman's like, yeah. Hey man, I'm nervous. This is driving me crazy. I'd rather have a baby. I, you know, like, and they'll hyperventilate and you can deal with it. Whereas a man just flat pass out. And it's, it's somewhat true to almost what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I would, 
Um, I, if you were concerned about a young person, I would tell the parents. Um, I've had college students say to me, I believe my roommate's suicidal. She made me promise when, when she told me that, she made me promise I wouldn't tell her folks. What should I do? And I say, tell her folks. Folks, yeah, immediately, yeah. She's going to be mad. She's going to unfriend you on Facebook. But how are you going to feel if you don't and she does something? Right. So I always err on the side of, you know, ask, are you depressed? Ask flat out, are you having thoughts of suicide? Do you have a plan? It's, it's that conversation. Starting the conversation is very powerful. Here's why, Sonny. Eight out of 10 people, here's the good news. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They can't make up their mind about doing it. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last seven days leading up to the attempt, which tells me Wait, the stop. vast let's, majority let's of that. people, A, want to be safe. Let's say that one more time because that was powerful. Nine out of 10 people in the last seven days leave give hints. hints. Yes. That's huge. So that tells me eight out of 10 are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give hints. That means A, the vast majority of people can be saved. B, the vast majority of people want to, want be, to saved. be saved. They want you to notice want something. To. That's what I'm picking up. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that's why I teach the signs and symptoms, what to say and what not say, what to do and what not do. With the dental practices, I say to them, look, if somebody comes in and they sit in the chair and people tell dentists and hygienists things, they don't tell their family. Uh, something about being kicked back there, you know, in a vulnerable position. It's like being in a bar or at your barber, you know, you, you tell them things you don't tell your spouse. I said, look, what I would do is I would Google free mental health services and the name of your county. And you're going to get a list on Google and it's not just going to be free ones. You're going to get free ones and ones on a sliding scale and some that are just Cadillac. You got to have good insurance, but print out page one, two, and three from Google, put it in a plain envelope. And when they come to the desk to pay up, just quietly hand them the envelope. No, nothing written on the outside. Nobody knows what's in there. And then very important follow up within within 24 to 48 hours, have somebody on staff call and go, listen, I know you're here the other day. You're feeling kind of rough. I, we're just calling check in, let you know we care. That right there, you're because you're not a clinician, you know, psychological con right. clinician, but I'm not. But all I try to do is plant seeds of hope. Yeah, there are people who care. And here's something I tell the parents of children who have suicidal thoughts don't tell a child you got so much to live for. That doesn't make a bit of difference. Trust me, it's not about what you have or don't have generally. I mean, Robin Williams had millions of dollars in the bank, a gazillion fans, people loved him, didn't matter. What you need to say to the child is, just out of the blue every now and then, look, I bet sometimes you have the thought that my folks would be better off, my family would be better off without me. Let me assure you, that is not the case. None of us would be better off without you just know that that's the reassurance i think they need because as i said every almost every suicidal person has that that burdensomeness the world be better you know my folks have spent a lot of money and it's been a lot of time i'm such a pain in the ass they'd be better off without me no yeah no you, we will not be yeah but just out of, out of the blue random you know just remind them 
that the world, the world and your family will not be better off without you. Let me ask you a question. Do relationships make a difference? Like, let's say, um, again, you got a child and, or you got it like, you know, I, I'm going to go to my, I'm going to reference myself. Right. So if I'm coaching a bunch of kids and I know they've had a, a, you know, whether it's girls or I'm coaching a bunch of boys either way. And I know that they've had a big time breakup or a, you know, some type of uh, heartache or heartbreak. Is that, is there anything, is there any connections there? Well, what you need to do, I believe, and, and, and uh, one of our, my co-authors for the four books did a TEDx on this. Uh, I think it's called the, the Four Lies That Adults Tell You. And in the TEDx, she talks about how adults react to young people's problems as an adult. They forget, for example, that first breakup. Well, honey, it's just puppy love. It's not a big deal. You know, there'll be other boys. They forget just how big a deal it was when it was them. Mm -hmm. As an adult, they know they're going to ride it out. There's going to be somebody else, you know, no big deal. Come on, buck up, little soldier. They forget that for children, young people, they feel things very intensely. It's not, it's not just a passing fancy. It's not just puppy love. I mean, I remember when my first girlfriend broke up with me. I mean, I was every song on the radio, I swear to goodness, sounded like a breakup song to me. Yeah. And they were talking right loving to you. Loving you was wrong. I don't Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know. Loving you was wrong. I don't want to be right. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere I go, you know, reminds me of her. Oh man. It was just, it was horrible. You, had that you forget too. that when you're an adult. It's like, yeah, it's like bullying. Okay. When I was a kid, I'm sure same for you. Bullying was up close and personal. Mm -hmm. It was it was junior high school. Unfortunately, the guy in the locker next to me in the locker room, the boys' locker room, was George Ragland. He was a great athlete, dumb as a bag of hammers. And for some reason, he just like hit me in the shoulder. I don't know why. I just, I, I just decided to pick on me. But when I went home, I left him behind. And nowadays, kids take the bully home in their pocket in the form of a smartphone. Yep. And I could never understand how anybody could be cyber bullied. I thought, that's, uh, you know, you, you put, put the phone down, you turn the phone on. Until it happened to me. I did something that a lot of people took umbrage at. They believed I'd done something horrible. I, I, I came back from Cambodia in February of 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic. And one article said, I mean, I was in New York Times and Newsweek and Time and New York Post. And they all, all the articles had a headline like, Comedian Jumps Quarantine. And one of them, that one of the guys last night, I said, Google my name, Frank King, Comedian Quarantine, and see what comes up. He goes, man, right here it says, he may have come back to the United States dragging the virus. Uh, and so they thought I came back to kill them. And I had changed my home phone number. We deactivated three social media accounts for a couple of weeks. And people said that, I mean, the nastiest, you know, I, and I thought to myself, I'll never meet these people. Chances are, you know, I've, they're not friends of mine. And I don't know them. They're just coming. They're just trolls are coming after me to, to you know, to polish their reputation. Because that's what that's all about. And but I thought, if I was in school, 
and the people coming after me online were my classmates that I had to see day in and day out. I'm not sure I could take that. I heard myself in my head going, Mom, I want to be homeschooled. Why is that? Because I'm going to kill somebody if, you know, if, if this doesn't stop. How do kids, I, you know, again, you take the bully home in your pocket. Yeah. Um, I left. That's real. I remember yeah. Michael Koontz. Michael Koontz in eighth grade said to me, Meet me on the ball field. I'm going to kick your ass. I can't remember why he was mad. And so I nodded, okay, I'll see you there. Well, when the bell rang at three o'clock, I got on the bus, went home. Next day he comes up and he goes, Where were you, man? I go, I got on the bus, went home. He goes, Oh, <laughs> that was that. But again, when I left school, school grounds, I left Mike Coons behind. He was on the ball field waiting. I mean, I'm I'm long gone. But if it if it had been online and everybody in, in the world in my group could see it on Facebook or whatever, you know, went viral in high school, then I don't know how young people deal with that. I really don't. So if if um, so, let's let's speak about that just for a second, then, because social media I know has changed the game, and I know in, in athletics and colleges, teams have like they have full time psychiatrists that uh, meet with you know athletes you know often because of that you know and, and like an example would be, hey I, I'm a kid and I play you know volleyball at Penn State, and I have three thousand followers and. I make the winning point and I got 2,999 or saying how great I am. The next match, I got a shot and I hit it out of bounds. We lose. I now have a thousand of the 3000 people ripping me and, and you, you can't deal with that. So, so talk a little bit about that. Like what these, some of these kids are dealing with young. Well, young, it's a metric. Yeah. Uh, shares, likes, follows all a metric. A friend of mine said to me, if a girl was really good looking, she had 500 followers on Facebook, and there's another girl who's not quite as good looking, but she's got 5,000 followers, I'm going to ask the 5,000 follower girl out because that's become the metric. For us, when I was a kid, it was, you know, the head cheerleader and the quarterback. That was the, you're going out with the head cheerleader, man. You are. You're it. <laughs> you know, you're it. But nowadays, it's 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 followers and and likes and 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 part of the problem, Sonny, is, and I'm gonna. This is gonna be my talk on May 15th in Plano. It's called digital media addiction: smartphones, social yeah. media, and suicide. They've got all of us hooked on social media, and they do it. They do it in a way that they do it in Vegas. It's called variable reinforcement. The reason people put money in slot machines is because every now and then they pay off. Yeah. That's why you keep putting money in. And social media is something like that. You put a post up and you're constantly checking the phone to see likes, shares, comments. And, you know, you get a little ding notification, like a slot machine, ding. And you look, oh, God, I got a like, ding. Oh, I got a share. Right. And then you look, nothing. You look, nothing. You look, nothing. But you're going to keep looking because sooner or later, you're going to get that reward. You're going to get the hit of dopamine because somebody liked it, shared it. It went viral or whatever. I, I think part of the problem is, is the, you know, it's, the phone is attached to us, and I'm guilty of this as anybody else. I think parents should decide. First, the parents grow a spine, and then 
say to the kids, look, seven o'clock tonight, all the all the mobile devices, all the smartphones, or whatever, go into this power strip in our bedroom, and we're shutting the router off so that you know it's a it's a internet blackout, and it doesn't nobody gets their phone back or the router doesn't come on again until seven o'clock the next morning, and then they have weekends where the entire weekend it's a blackout, it's an internet blackout. You have to talk to each other at the dinner table. Mm. Um, I think that that would be, and on the iPhone, on smartphone, there is a an app that tells you about how much screen time you spent that week. Yes, sir. Yep. I believe I believe you should check that once a week religiously and see is it too much, is it too little, is it just right? You know, because knowledge can awareness can be corrective. Wow, I'm spending way too much on you know, too much time on this social media platform or that social media platform. So I think, the, but those are simple sort of mechanical things you can do to cut down on screen time and, you know, and disconnect the kids from their devices. And because when I speak to colleges, the only pressure that is there now that wasn't there for me, I mean, there's grades and romance and finances and, you know, exams. The only element that wasn't there is social media right that's the that's i i speak at colleges and and i don't just speak on suicide prevention i speak on stress anxiety and suicide prevention because a student said to me frank you know not that many of us are suicidal but the last study i read and he read said 60 percent of college students are suffering from anxiety right yep yep and as a coach, you're in a unique position. You're, you know, you're with the kids probably as much or more than their parents are. You know, you, you take training, you take suicide prevention training, you become what's called a gatekeeper. You're always watching out for those signs and symptoms and then stepping up and saying something. You know, son, I, I saw a guy speak not long ago and he told me about the signs and symptoms of depression. I noticed, you know, you're having trouble getting here on time. But you're rallying in the afternoon, and you know, you look like maybe you're letting, you know, pants aren't quite so clean. I mean, are you having, are you depressed? Flat out ask them because you know what? Again, people are ambivalent. People will give hints. They, they want help, just don't know how to ask for it. And one last note, because I got another at the bottom of the hour. The people you need to worry about are not the kid dressed all in black with the ear pipes and the piercing, you know, the goth kid. Yeah. The one that you think is just a, a loser and, and he's, you know, he's always wearing black and you know, he's got hats and he dyes his hair. The ones to watch out for are the ones that are the star quarterback, the guy with the straight A's. He's homecoming king. He's got a scholarship to go to, a, you know, a um, – a big division one school play ball because a lot of times people who are depressed and have other mental illness challenges are very talented. And so I, I, I watched the kids that got it all because you mm -hmm. can't, I can't tell you any time, you know, he had it all. He had, you know, he's, he's top of his class. He's going to Stanford to play ball on scholarship. You know, everybody loved him. Uh, and, that's that's I uh, yeah the goth kid yeah I'm sure that happens occasionally but I tell you it's all it seems to me it's always the the strong ones 
Watch yeah, out one, for your strong friends. Watch yeah, out. Right. The ones whose appearance in social media and everything is impeccable. Right. Yeah. Fantasy land. Yeah. It's a highlight reel. Yeah. And they can, nobody can. And people, no, nobody, and people measure themselves, yeah. you know, by other people's Facebook page. I mean, I'm guilty as everybody. I, I hired a LinkedIn marketing company. And they're doing a great job. And I'm, I've got posts that get like 38,000 views. And now when I see some of my other friends on LinkedIn are not using it and they got three views, I'm like, <laughs> I'm more popular. <laughs> and I saw one today that had, I don't know, 37 views, which is not bad compared to my friends. But I was depressed because I only had 30. I'm, well, where's my 37,000? What's, what's wrong with this post? <laughs> All right. Well, Frank, I appreciate your time and I'm sure we helped out a bunch of people. So thank you. And if they yes, want to reach you, I'll send you, um, I said, I think I sent you uh, an email with my social media stuff in there, my website. Okay. And my, my phone number is on that Gmail as well. So what I tell people, look, Sonny, I tell them, look, if you're, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline or text the text line. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. And here's my cell. I do that every time I speak. And people don't call a lot, but people do call or text right. if they're you know, struggling or if they have a friend or family member that's struggling. Thanks for listening to the fee-for-service dentist podcast. If you would like to share your fee-for-service story, please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our fee-for-service dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.